Well, we're going to jump right into it this morning because I have a lot of notes to try to get through. We're coming to the end of Genesis, so we're trying to get there. But let me recap as we get into Genesis 45. We're actually going to cover uh, four chapters today, if you can believe it. We're not going to read it all, but we're gonna, that's the amount of uh, that we're going to uh, go over. But, you know, to recap, Joseph, we're, we're in the story of Joseph here toward, toward the end of Genesis. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers got really irritated with him. Have you ever been irritated with your brothers or sisters? You, uh, you understand, you know. At my cousin's funeral, I even mentioned, I said, Chris either, either protected you or ir- irritated the heck out of you. And they all laughed because they understood exactly um, what that meant. But uh, at 17 years old, he kind of irritated his brothers. So they beat him up. They threw him into the well. A caravan came, comes by, and they sold him into slavery. So as a slave, he's in the house of, uh, uh, of one of the guys, and, and the guy's wife kind of wanted to, uh, you know, mess around with him and all that. And Joseph said, no, I can't do that. that. That's a sin against my God. So what happens? The wife accuses him, and he gets thrown into jail. All this time this stuff is happening, Joseph keeps his faith. Eventually, the Lord gets him out of jail and puts him in charge of Egypt, basically. Uh, you know, we know Pharaoh's in charge of Egypt, but Pharaoh's kind of a figurehead in the sense of he doesn't do anything. He has all the other people to do stuff for him, and that's Joseph. Joseph is in charge of all collecting the grain because he, he interpreted the dream of, um, uh, of fam, you know, feast and famine. In other words, seven years of, of, of great feast, and, and the land would produce. And then seven years of famine, and, and, and the land wouldn't produce anything, and everybody would you know, starve and so forth. So jo- uh, Pharaoh put him in charge of collecting all the grain. So during this time, his family shows up, comes from all the way from Canaan over. They're looking to buy grain, and Joseph recognizes them. He kind of plays a few family games with them, like uh, putting them in jail and then keeping one brother, sending them back home, all those wonderful things, kind of, a, kind of a getting them back a little bit, I guess. But he, he manipulates the whole situation because he wants to see his real family, Benjamin. And they finally bring Benjamin back. And at the dinner in his house, he brings all the family together, and he's in the middle of this emotional dinner in the house. And that's where we pick up today in Genesis 45. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he finally wept, uh, or, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. So, you know, the gossip train is happening. Everybody's, something's going on over there. I don't know, the family, you know, they, they got this family there, and Joseph's freaking out. He's crying a lot, all the way to, to Pharaoh. But what's interesting is Joseph is remarkably well-balanced for a man who has been through a lot in his life. He's got a lot thrown at him. And psychologically speaking, I mean, he's pretty healthy here. Uh, he still has a lot of hurt. He still has to work through those things. But now that his brothers have basically kind of confessed, and you go back to read the story, you understand what I've been saying. But it's shown that they have changed in their life, and it all just comes out. And he, in a sense, it, you know, for our modern words, he finally has closure on it. So he gets this closure. Verse 3, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I bet they were terrified. 
These guys were just, I mean, they just, you know, they, probably a couple of them fell over on the floor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I wonder what they were thinking at the moment. Like, man, we're really in trouble now. Verse 4 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, again, with the, the whole idea, the last couple of sermons we were in, when we were in Genesis, we talked about Joseph being a type of Christ and all the things that happened in Joseph, uh, you know, was a foreshadowing of what would happen to uh, Christ during the time. But, you know, the first time they met him at this point when he's with Pharaoh and so forth, he, you know, he revealed himself to them. They didn't know who he was. He talked to them, and they did all this stuff. I mean, he would look different. We talked about how they would wear makeup and all this kind of stuff, the officials and all that. But the second time, it's like Christ. When Christ first shows up, the people don't know who they are or who he is. The Jews don't recognize him as the Messiah. The second time, they know who he is, the Savior of the world. And Joseph here is their Savior, in a sense, in their world. In uh, verse 5, it goes on and says, And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was, uh, it was to save lives that God has sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Joseph here personifies exactly what Paul wrote all those years later. And, and, we, and we all know this verse, and we talk about this verse a lot, you know, and we know that all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And from Romans, Joseph takes an incredibly gracious attitude toward his brothers. He's very kind. He's very gracious. He is full of the Holy Spirit in his life. God was with him, and he responds that way. And this is what's amazing to me. All the stuff he's gone through, he still responds in a godly way. Now, his brothers, they have all this guilt that, that they will have to deal with. Some of the brothers have a lot of guilt and, you know, and haven't really dealt with anything. But this is between God and us and them as individuals when we have this guilt going on. Even though God has forgiven them, some of, some of them have held on to this guilt. And, and you can see it because every time something negative happens in their life, God is punishing us for what happened back then. God is punishing me for, you know, anything happens negatively. I mean, have you ever been there and you're sitting there thinking, oh man, God's punishing me again and again and again. But this is what's sad. If God has forgotten the sin, what do we need to do? We need to move forward. We need to move on. It's time for us to forget about the things in the past. If God has forgiven us for what has happened in our life, we need to move on. We need to not stay there because if we stay there, we're stuck right there and we'll never go forward. You've got to get, give it over to God and, and ask God for forgiveness and then move forward. Joseph is acknowledging how God works in the universe, how God uses certain things in our lives for his good 
even though we may not look at it as good. I mean, Joseph's sitting there going, I am here because God placed me here. God allowed me to get thrown into a well, to be sold, to be accused, to go to jail, and then to stay in jail after I saved the other guy out of jail. God allowed all that to happen for me to be here today. You know, we often say this, you know, we're going to be celebrating my son's birthday here in a, in a few, uh, a couple of weeks here, and he's going to turn four. And I've often said that everything else in Tulare has, in a sense, been a bonus. Maybe God just brought my wife in here, uh, my wife and I here, just to adopt that little child out of the situation that he was in. Maybe that's the only reason why God, and then everything else is just a bonus. God puts us in the right place at the right time, and we need to acknowledge those things in our lives. Goes on and uh, says in verse 9 Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says God has made me Lord of all, of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there because. Five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Now, Goshen is, if you've ever studied Egypt, Goshen is like the perfect part of Egypt. It's the most fertile part. You can grow anything up in that area of the world. It's about 900 square miles. Verse 12, it says, you can see for yourselves. So you, so you and so can my brother Benjamin that this is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brothers, Benjamin and wept, or his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all over his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. I mean, there's a lot of catching up, a lot of stuff going on here. And, you, know, and, you know, after the embarrassment of everything, everything has transpired since. He wants to know about. Verse 16, it says, when, when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. I mean, everybody's happy for this guy. They all love Joseph. Joseph was the savior of Egypt. And, and so, so if Joe is happy, we're all happy. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like when you say if mom's happy, everybody's happy in the household. Same kind of concept here. Verse 16, it says, When the news reached Pharaoh's palace and his, uh, that, brother, uh, that brother, Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. And again, this is what, you know, rulers do. I'll take care of all of you. You can have everything, in a sense. That's what he's saying here. You're also directed to tell, uh, wait. You're also directed to tell them, do this. Take some cars from Egypt uh, for your children and your wives, and get your father and come, never mind about your belongings, because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. Now, this is in, uh, in Egypt. They're already using wills. We, we got to think, you know, we're in airplanes and cars and phenomenal. I mean, space travel we do today. If you talked about space travel in the 1800s, people look at you like you're nuts. You know what I'm saying? 
Okay, back then, Egypt was still, had developed the will and, and all that. They were actually writing in cards. The land of Canaan, most of them had never even seen something like that. So to ride on a donkey for an Egyptian is just unheard of. They're like, no, 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 don't, don't do those animal things. Here, take some cards, load everything up. Verse 21, so the, so the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best of things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. He's still remembering back to when he's 17. He knows brothers. He understands. He goes, don't let anything come between you guys. Don't let anything upset you guys. Don't fight about anything. I, I know you're stressed about finding the cups and the grain from before, and which made you, don't be, all that stuff, we're all good now. Not to mention, now they have to explain everything to dad. You know, they've kind of, this, this underlying issue of what happened to Joseph way back when, you know, that's not been fully explained to dad what happened. And now they have to go do that. And he's saying, don't stress out, it's going to work out. Verse 25, it says, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. <laughs> you know, jo- yeah, jo- he's still alive. What was that? Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of Egypt. You know, they kind of throw that in there, you know. It's all great news. It says Jacob was stunned. I mean, I'd be stunned too. The King James says his heart stopped. Either they're afraid that they're going to kill him with bad news you know, I mean, or, or like, think about it. Or, uh, when they did this to Joseph, they made up this whole story. So, in a sense, they didn't want to deliver the bad news to him before. And here they bring good news to him, and it almost kills him. I mean, this is almost too hard for his brain to, to get wrapped around to quite understand here. He says, he did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them... And we saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back. The spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Nothing like a new flashy vehicle out front to perk somebody up. You know what I'm saying? It's got this cart out there. I mean, these Bedouins, they they hadn't, you know, they hadn't seen this kind of stuff. 1900 BC, the, the Canaanites had yet to, you know, like we said earlier, you know, use wheels for transportation. You know, I was talking to my grandmother, and I said, what, what, is, what is one of your f- first memories? She, she passed away a good uh, 10 years ago. She was uh, a little, little earlier than that. She was 94 when she passed away. And I said, what, what was one of your first memories one time when I was driving her uh, around in Oklahoma? And she goes, my first memory that, that just really sticks with me was my grandfather and my father and me were in this new car. She goes, they'd never driven before. And they're driving around out near the barn, and they start heading to the barn because that's where they parked it, but they were on the side of the barn, so they're coming the wrong direction. And grandfather just starts going, whoa, whoa, and they go right through the barn. 
He thought it was a mule. You just say, whoa, and they stop, right? You know, they, uh, think about your first memories. I mean, 1930s, first cars and planes. So, I mean, this, for us, it's not a huge deal, especially you young people that are in here. I mean, I mean the iPhone is just like, oh, it's an iPhone. Okay, uh, iPhone, you know. Mom, can I have one, you know? But, I mean, think about it. Ten years ago, the iPhone was just an amazing piece of technology. It changed everything. I mean, here I'm preaching from iPad. I'm changing my slides from the iPad. That, it's unheard of, you know. Think of somebody from the 70s seeing this, or from the 50s, or from the 30s, or the 1800s. That's how Joseph and them feel. But he also thought his son was dead for 22 years, and now these carts show up, these vehicles show up, and they're saying your son is alive. Verse 27, it says, but when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Now the word spirit is the word ruah. It's breath or light, you know, like a light force. This is what, what our creator used when he breathed life into Adam and Eve. This is powerful. It's like his soul breathed again. God is giving him his, his life back because he, I mean, for 22 years, he's been thinking about his son being dead. And now God is kind of breathing life back into him. His soul breathes again here. The hopeful things are, are coming back. The faith guy that he used to be is coming back. Fear is starting to kind of fade away. You know, with, with Joseph, I mean, with Jacob, it went back and forth. Jacob and Israel, you know, his name changed. And, and when he's Jacob, he's kind of got that fear-based life. And with, with, with Israel, it's that faith-based life. Fear and faith, back and forth. Like he's wrestling with two identities with himself. You know, Jekyll and Hyde. Jacob the schemer, climbing the corporate ladder type of guy. You know, the one trying to get ahead. Just stepping over everybody. And the same guy has this other identity. Israel, the triumphant one, the winner, the victor. Faith versus fear. Manipulator versus the one who trusts and the one who wins. He's older now. And as you get older, you start to realize certain things. I mean, I'm seeing parents fight at kindergarten graduations. Now, being an older parent with a son fixing to go into kindergarten, I'm sitting there thinking, that's just plain dumb. That's just stupid, you know, to, to act that way in front of your children. But at a younger age, for some reason, we, we kind of, for some people just, you know, they just, they manipulate. But he's realizing that, you know, Jacob's realizing you can't manipulate yourself through life. If you let go of that control and let God, you know, trust in the Lord, trust that God will take care of you, good things can and will happen. There's some really good things happening to Israel now. His son is not dead. His son is alive and, you know, ruling in Egypt. It's like a desert that was dry at one time. And then all of a sudden, a torrential rain comes in. And, you know, and after all these dry years, you have, you have flowers and stuff just popping up. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Death Valley, have you ever seen pictures of that? When, you know, beautiful valley just full of flowers, but most of the time it's just brown and dusty and you don't want to be left out there, right? I mean, we think it's hot here. I think the other day it was 126 degrees in, in Death Valley. But all of a sudden, 
It's like life is there again, out of nowhere. But in reality, the seeds have been there the whole along. The hard soil just had to be fed. This is Jacob's heart and his soul. He can, he can begin again to breathe. Israel says a very short sentence, and it means so much here. It says here in verse 20, 28, And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. I'm convinced. Or you can almost translate it, this is enough. It's like he's saying, I've had enough of the old guy in me. It's almost like he's speaking to himself, like he's saying, I've had enough of me completely. I'm tired of the whiner that's been inside of me. I'm tired of the the faithless guy. I'm tired of the hopeless guy, the self-pity guy, the fear. It is enough. I'm done with that. He's ready to climb out of the pit that he's been living in, the funk that he's been in, the attitude that he's had, and climb into one of Pharaoh's cart and really go into the future. It's almost like the, you know, you could almost imagine him going, boys, Help me up into that cart. No, no, not that one, the gold one. You know, okay, no one's getting this, huh? I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm just saying. You know, he's saying, let's go. Let's just, let's just get up there and let's go. So it says here, so Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. This is fascinating. He is on his way to see a son that he hasn't seen in 22 years years. He gets to Beersheba and he thinks, I need to make a sacrifice to the Lord. You see how God has awoken his spirit here? His eyes are new again. He's starting to realize things that he's, he's stopped over the years and it causes him to renew his worship. We see this sometimes when, when a man, uh, you know, has let his, his family go to church for years without him and all of a sudden he figures out, I need to join them. I need to worship again. And this is what's happening to Israel. And what happens is he begins to worship God, and God is there. In fact, God responds to him. God actually calls out his name. Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. Now notice that as soon as he decides to get right with God, God is there speaking with him. God has been waiting on him to come back. He's not even out of the land of Canaan yet, and Jacob has heard this voice before. Jacob recognizes God's voice. God is wanting to speak to his long-lost friend. Beersheba is a place that has significance for his family. His grandfather was there in Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah. They lived there Isaac returned in Genesis 26 there, and and, and God gave him his blessing there. Isaac built an altar there. Jacob had been there when he was running from his brother. He stops there before going into the desert when he had the dream of the ladder and, and, you know, what, what we call Jacob's ladder and the angels going up and down from heaven and so forth, and he wrestles with the Lord. The Lord gives him his blessing. He says, I'm with you, Jacob. I'm with you. Jacob calls it the house of God, the gate of heaven. He made promises to God at that point. Many years later, now he returns to this place for the final time, and all these memories start flooding back. Have you ever gone somewhere and the memories flood back? 
You know, like I, I just went home to, uh, you know, to, to Texas and, and being in Texas, you know, going down to the local gas station to get barbecue. I mean, there, there's a great barbecue place near my house. You know, all those memories coming back are, are going up to, to do the funeral in Oklahoma and, you know, being around the kid, you know, all the, all the cousins when we were kids and going over to grandma's house and all the grandparents that, that uh, you know, been to, to, that are with the Lord yet, you know, or with the Lord now. Are going on certain family vacations. I mean, you, you guys know that I love Hawaii. I mention it all the time. But, you know, people are like, why do you always go back to the big island? Well, I've been going there since 1999. It, it has all these memories. And now I get to, you know, all these family and friends that have gone with us over the years. And, and now I get to share that with my own children. Are going to Canada. I mean, memories of, of father fishing in Canada, brother and all that kind of, countless memories of catching the biggest fish of the group. It's happened more often than not. It's been kind of fun. But you can understand Jacob, his feelings here. He has 11 sons with all their wives, all the caravan, and they're stopping in Beersheba, offering sacrifices to Elohim, the God of his father. Verse 3, it says, I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, I'm sure that this kind of eased his pain, calmed his fears, kind of built up his faith a little bit. Joseph's suffering has come to an end. Now, many of us that have gone through suffering when we're in the middle of suffering, does it seem like there's ever an end to that suffering? No. Not in the middle. Usually we're so focused on the suffering and what's going on around, we never really see that end. But if we've gone through the suffering and reached an end of a suffering period, we look back and go, whew, it's over. And we know that God got us through that. That's what's going on here. It, you know, his, his, Joseph's, or Jacob's faith has returned, and that's the same with us. Our faith can return. God is not a God where, where things happen and there's no hope for our future. I mean, in the caravan, there's a man named Judah that did terrible things when he was young. But God is a God of second chances. He actually takes the leadership of the whole family, you don't hear much about Reuben. If you know about family structures, the oldest is always, you know, and if you've got an older brother or sister, you understand. The oldest is always, you know, anybody? Okay, go with me, okay? But you don't really hear about Reuben at all. Jacob, I mean, uh, uh, Judah, he's the one that instigated a lot of stuff with his brother Joseph. Yet he, you know, ends up being the, being the one kind of in charge of the family. Our God is a God of second chances. He's the one that steps up serving and helping and leading. See, the devil's the one that tells us there's no second chances in life. The devil's the one that keeps bringing that, those sins back up and beating you over the head with it. The devil's the one that does that. And God says, you need to forget about that and you need to move forward. The only good behavior that we see from, from Jacob that is rewarded is his faith. And it's rewarded in a big way. Jacob didn't turn his life around in huge ways. 
the one area that Jacob turned his life around in was faith. Faith that led to other changes, but it was about his faith. Faith that, that allowed him to let Benjamin go that we talked about several weeks ago. And God has rewarded him for that. He had the trust that his, you know, trust his sons again that had lied to him about his, you know, you know, his, his favorite son. You know, he knew something hinky was going on there. He might have not have known the whole story. Maybe he did know the whole story. We don't really know. But he'd already lost one son. And so when they were saying, well, your second favorite son, your, your, your favorite son now, we need to take him back to Egypt so we can get the other brothers out. And he's like, no, 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 this isn't happening again. I don't think so. But finally, he had, he had to have that faith and the Lord rewarded him. He has to trust the Pharaoh that everything would be done. To go to Egypt, that's a lot of trust. I mean, Egyptians don't even like other cultures. Why would we go there? But he was following the Lord's leading. He gets to Beersheba, and God rewards his faith by speaking his name. Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. He basically says, go, and I'll bring you back. Now, some of you will say, well, I've read the story. He doesn't really come back alive. But we got to understand, Israel, you know, I mean, they bring his bones back, you know, 400 years later. But really, Israel is more than just one person. This is a nation God is bringing. God is saying, I will bring Israel back. I will bring this nation back, the remnant, the chosen ones. So when he gets to Beersheba, he offers sacrifice. We see faith, we see obedience, and we see worship. The children... The wives, the grandchildren, his great-grandchildren all see this. His great-grandchildren are getting to know a, a man his children never really knew. They didn't see the, the faith-worshipping uh, you know, uh, Israel here. They didn't see him in that, that manner because he's redeemed now. His heart is softening. His faith, his obedience, and his worship. God is honoring him now because this is really what God wanted out of his life. So good question for you is, what does God want from you? Is it possible that you've misread God? Is it worth your effort to, to find out what God wants from you? And then just go do that? You know, our children, we just want them to listen sometimes, right? Right? It's just about listening. Sometimes I tell Brandon, you know, my eight-year-old, no, 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 come back over here, stand. Stop what you're doing and listen. Because if he listens, then he'll get all the other stuff correct. But if he only half listens or a quarter listens or doesn't listen at all, then I have to fuss at him later and I become the bad guy, right? Sometimes God just wants us to listen and do what he says. This is the place that God meets us. This is the place that God calls your name. This is a place where you get yourself out of the pit of life and you find out what God wants and you do it and God meets you there and he rewards you for that. Because then you start heading towards faithfulness. You start heading toward godliness. And now your life is about worshiping. 
think about this. How long has it been since your worship has been rewarded by God? How long has it been that, you know, since God has spoke back to you? If you crave that, then you need to find him. Don't let the devil deceive you. We need to crave God. We need to want God. We need to have faith in God. We need to trust God. We need to follow him, and he will give us the desires of our heart because our heart's desire meet up with his heart's desire. What are the desires of your heart? Are you afraid to even state them? Hmm. We need to start telling God what our desires are and then say, God, what are your desires? Verse 5, it says, And Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's son took their father, Jacob, and the children and their wives in the carts that the Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with him or within their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and his grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters and all his offspring. And then it goes on to list all the families and so forth. All the, you know, Leah's 33 children and, and grandchildren and, and Zipla's 16 children and grandchildren and Bilhah's seven children and grandchildren and, and nine of Rachel's, uh, you know, and all this kind of, all the family. But now what's interesting is they're one unified family. The bickering is gone. You see that? They're older now. The bickering is gone. There's no sense of separation. The sons have, have come together, and the father has kind of brought them around, and the whole family follows them. No more competition within the family. You have 66 people. It's like a huge family reunion in a sense. They printed T-shirts. I lived in Canaan, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt, and you know all sorts of things like that. And, and you guys, oh, you're not helping me at all today, man. But they're traveling up to meet Joseph's Egyptian family of four. He's got two kids. And I'm sure the conversations were, you know, he's got two kids. And, and you know, somebody goes, oh, they probably named them Egyptian names. I wonder what those are. And they're like, no, no, no. He named them Hebrew names. I'm like, wow, well, what are they? Well, one of them's name is I Forgot. Yeah. Is in, I forgot all my pain. I forgot what all, the, you know, what all you brothers did to me. And I'm sure all the grandkids are laughing. Oh, he named him after you, huh? You know? Then he named his other son Faithful. I'm faithful when I used to be hopeless. Joseph, man, he's, he's something else. Verse 28, it says, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. They didn't have their iPad with them or iPhone or anything like that. So basically, Joseph is, is running all around Egypt doing his job. So they arrange a meeting place in, in Goshen. And Judah represents a family now. Pharaoh is coming to meet Joseph's family. His, you know, his dad has never shown him any favor at all. All the favor went to Joseph before Joseph was sold off and then to Benjamin. But now he's grown so much. He is honoring his father by representing his father. You know, it's like Father's Day. Much easier for Joseph or Benjamin to celebrate than it is for Judah because Judah's been kind of like the, the stepchild in a sense. You know what I'm saying? Treated kind of that way because, you know, uh, Jacob really treated his first two really well. But this is... You know, Judah's honoring him. 
Shows a lot of class, a lot of maturity here. Does what dad asks him to do and what dad needs him to do. Probably thinks that he's never really been noticed. But when you read, you know, the father's blessing in Genesis 49, you see that dad was paying attention all those years. And he prays that, that, that Judah would be highly honored, that the Lion of Judah that the, would bring the Messiah. And it says here, when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he, uh, he threw his arms around his, around his father and wept for a long time. Imagine the emotion happening between these two men in a sense almost like their father child again like young child first time to see him for 22 years a picture you know joseph being this big strong you know egyptian guy at this point and 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 jacob being this little old jewish man a weathered guy who has worked for so many years you know hard life being a bedouin living in tents taking care of, you know, uh, cattle or sheep and all those different things. I mean, Israel's life is resolved so beautifully now. He basically says, I can die now. I've seen your face. I can die now. I'm a happy man. Israel, in verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, Now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you were still alive. But he doesn't die. He goes on and lives another 17 years. The old man gets to hang out with Joseph for that long. Couldn't you imagine Israel in a chariot with Joseph? I mean, the, <laughs> the callers, you know, going out in front of the chariot saying, make way, make way, you know, all that kind of stuff that happens. And, and Joseph is coming through, and here's this little old man with him in a really dark skin from, from being out in the sun, you know. But, but 17 years of honor that goes with him. The New Tef- uh, Testament scripture really fits in here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror that we shall see face, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall fully know even as I have fully known. Kind of an interesting concept. Different events happen in our life that we do not understand. I could list you off a dozen different things that have, that have happened since we've been, you know, in the Bay Area or here. But, you know, that, that, that you're sitting there going, why? What? I, uh, uh. You know, and you're sitting there going, I don't, I don't understand. But one day it'll be, it'll be made clear, you know. I know one thing, though. It all works out in the end. So it doesn't really matter what I go through because I know where I'm going in the end. Because it's about God. It's not about me. And it goes on there in the 1 Corinthians 13. It says, and now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's like three compasses that help navigate our life. Three anchors, in a sense, that help hold us to the holy place of God. Or, you know, another analogy, since I'm doing those, three vehicles to get us where we need to be in life. Faith, hope, and love. So now we have the Son saving everyone. Pointing, of course, to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. That's what Joseph's life does. Coming to seek the, and save the lost, the starving, the hungry. 
the thirsty. Jesus said, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> Jesus said all these things. If this is not a Father's Day sermon, I don't know what is. Christ coming to seek to save the lost, the starving, and the hungry, just like Joseph. Verse 31, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household, who are living in the land of Cayman, have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. It's kind of interesting. They were told not to do all this, but they brought everything. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants attended livestock for, uh, from our boyhood on, uh, on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, and all the sh- uh, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. He's basically saying, don't be ashamed of who you are. He's helping them navigate this thing. Just go up there and enjoy, uh, enjoy life. He's going to point you toward Goshen. Chapter 47 says, Joseph went to, and told Pharaoh, my fathers and brothers and their flocks and herds and everything they own have come to the land of Canaan and now are in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked his brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because of the famine is severe in Canaan. Your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Verse 5, it goes on, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land, let them live in Goshen. He's basically saying, I suggest Goshen. I'm going to give you anything, but I'm telling you where to go. You know, he's kind of pointing them that way. And if you know of any among them with a special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. He's sitting there going, well, hey, they can take care of my own stuff. Verse 7, it says, Then Joseph bought his father, Jacob, in and presented him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, uh, uh, Pharaoh, uh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? It's kind of interesting. He comes in before Pharaoh, and he's presented to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's first recognition of him is like, How old are you? I mean, come on. Pharaoh's never seen something so mummified that is still walking. You know what I'm saying? All their mummies are already in sarcophaguses and stuff, you know? You have to understand something. Egyptians really didn't live that long. They found out later, that, especially the pharaohs in the upper echelon, the cosmetics that they were using were basically killing them. It's like putting poison on your face. So ladies, next time you go in front of them, think, I'm just saying, most of them died in the 30s. Many of them died when they were teenagers. So you see this guy, it's all old and wrinkled, and, and he's just like, what is going on here? How old are you? You know? Verse 9 says, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And Pharaoh's listening to this interpretation, and it's interesting, and he's probably going, Man, this is really weird. But as long as it's bring your dad to work day, I guess we're just going to let it happen, you know? Verse 10, it says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out of his presence. 
He just steps up and he blesses Pharaoh in Hebrew. What Joseph must have been thinking, I've been through a lot in this life, but I never thought I'd see my dad standing before Pharaoh and blessing him. Another interesting thought. Here a believer, you know, believer in God is blessing an unbeliever. This is what we're really called to do in life. You know, we love to fight, especially you know, in politics or whatever, or, or atheists versus Christians. We just love to fight. But really, in reality, God is calling us to bless those around us, bless this world to the point where they go, something is different there. We're not supposed to fight over but who believes what and all that kind of stuff. We just need to bless them. And if God is, is there, there's enough to go around. And that blessing is abundant. It goes to tell you how Joseph has become wise and, you know, as a man in charge. He was a good businessman. He sold grain to people for money, then sold livestock, then, then he goes on and, you know, then sold for, he, basically, The Egyptians were running out of money, so then he said, well, give me all your livestock, and I'll give you grain. So they did that, and then he basically said, well, then give me your land. If you're out of livestock and money, give me your land, and I'll give you grain. So Pharaoh ends up owning everything. Then the Egyptians become servants of the Pharaoh. So you can understand why later on they didn't really like the Jews. It's all Joseph's fault that they became all these you know, enslaved to Pharaoh. Except for where the Israelites were. Verse 27, it says, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the land of a region of Goshen. They acquired property there, and they were fruitful, increased greatly in number. They were multiplying, they were having all these kids. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and all the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried, I will do as you say, he says. Basically, you would grab the, you know, the, the, the biggest muscle of the body, you know, the thigh muscle, and basically it was, it, that was the way they promised. You know, it was like the handshake of the day in a sense. But in chapter 48, Israel blesses uh, Joseph's son into the fold, giving them full birthright and inheritance, and like they were real sons, which they were. And just like Jacob, he prefers the younger over the older. Joseph actually tried to correct him out of this, but Jacob is stubborn. And shortly before he died, before, you know, before he dies in chapter 48 and 49, he blesses all the children. But in the end, he is Israel. The last 17 years of his life, he was faithful. Faithful to God. Faithful to his family. From the bitterness of life came the joy of life. He had what he needed. He had God in his life. God starts to reveal himself to the whole family, his sons, his daughters, wives, the, the children, the grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren. God is revealing himself, and Israel is ready to, to move on at this point. And God is continuing what he already promised. You know, we have a God that doesn't own a calendar or a watch or an iPhone 
whatever you want, you know. It can be very frustrating because God is on his own timetable, as many preachers are on Sunday, you know, it seems like. But this is 215 years after Elohim promised Abraham that his sons would be like the sands of the beach. You couldn't count them all. When they get to Egypt, the population of, of, of Israel was only 70 souls. And God starts to bless them and multiply them in a way only God could. This is the real God that we serve and the only God that we should serve. So the question is this. Can you serve a God like this? Can you serve a God that doesn't act on your schedule? Can you find faith in a God that does things in his way and his timing? That's what you have to ask yourself. That is the God that that we have to get to know. That is the God that we have to serve. His will, his time. We have to slow down and get on God's time and worship him only. Why don't we pray? Lord, we just thank you so much for, uh, for your scripture, for a man like Joseph, for a man like Jacob, that throughout life, they see all these difficulties come and go, and yet they're faithful to you. I pray that you help us forget about the, 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 the things of the past and move forward to think about how how you can bless our lives, to to say, say, Lord, this is my desire in my life. Does that match your desire? And if it doesn't, change me. For us to know and and rely on you. For us to give over those difficulties of life to uh, knowing that we can be faithful and that you respond to our faith. For those that are going through the valley right now, through the difficult time, Lord, we, we pray that you get them through that. For those that have, you know, already arrived on the other side of that, Lord, that, that you would help, uh, allow them to help others along that path. That we know that you're the one true God and we can serve you. We pray that our worship is fruitful. Fruitful to the kingdom. In your loving name, amen.